Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ellie Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I am here with my amazingly talented and brilliant co-host, Dr. Shiloh. Oh, look at her showing off. There you go. <laughs> I'm trying to look cute because I have my freaky Halloween makeup on. It's actually not bad. Well, it's like one side is is interesting. You know, you're doing a character. Yeah, I'm going to be an anime character to mortify my and embarrass my daughter for this event we're going to tonight. Clearly, you are focusing on positive parental skills. <laughs> Mortifying your children is yeah. definitely important. It's my my drive in life these days. So Good. she's very easily mortified. She's at that age where she's just going to be like, Mom, what are you wearing? <laughs> They're like, what? I thought you loved anime. <laughs> yeah, not on you. <laughs> oh, anyway, Halloween, spooky season, still going strong. Can't wait for actual Halloween in a few days. So having said that, I feel like we've got kind of like holiday season started. We had our watch party this last Friday night and it was great. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was fun. I had never seen that movie Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and it was as hokey as I wished it was going to be. Oh, great. I'm so <laughs> glad because I've seen it many, many times and it's actually, you know, it's so campy and over the top. And then watching it with a group of people that all had these different comments yeah. was really cool. And one of the things that I, I don't think I ever noticed is how great the set is, uh -huh. how great the lighting is. Like always, if the, if the music was different, it would actually be really scary. True. I mean, the music is a little like, I think my my husband, Dan, was telling me because he's an expert on all these areas. They were using stock music. Oh. So it's like, oh, what do we have in the library that we can just throw in here rather than having somebody score it? I think that's what it was. But hmm. anyway, we'll see. It was a good time. Yeah. So I think we don't really have anything else coming up for once. Thank goodness we can like breathe. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. So we are going to, we, we have this month's documentary episode review, but first a little recap from last episode. Yes. Well, this was a very interesting episode, even in the way that it came about, because you and I put together a schedule of at least two and a half to three months in advance of our show ideas. And this one, I texted you and said, you know what, we got to move some things around because this is just happening way too much to not address it. And the episode was airplane violence, madness in the skies, because there's a lot of that going on these days. It was a very timely subject. And we gave you an overview with examples of the escalating violence and threats on airlines, as well as some of the psychological factors that are likely contributing to this phenomenon. So if you haven't had a chance to listen, please go back and listen. I think the feedback we are getting already is pretty impressive. Like people were really wanting to hear this. Yeah. And we couldn't even fit in the episodes of what happens in an airport because right. <laughs> people have their share of freakouts there too. But we covered several of the most egregious examples of assault that have occurred in the air, as well as some of the issues that contribute to this increase really that we've seen over the past three years, but 2021 was a doozy. And then we followed that up with a live stream with a former flight attendant friend of yours. So yes, that is is that will eventually be up on the YouTube page. If you're a Patreon member, that audio should be there for you already. Cool. Yeah. So what have you been watching this month, Dr. Shiloh? So I binged The Watcher on Netflix. Okay. I thought it was a lot of fun. It was a very quick watch. It was 
creepy and also hilarious because like Jennifer Coolidge is in it and they just write a great character for her. So that was a lot of fun. I'm glad I got to actually stop and watch something for a moment. And then I have also been listening to the podcast Bad Women is back. So that's on the Pushkin Network and the first season focused on Jack the Ripper's victims. It takes a very victim-centric view at those crimes. But this mm. new season is looking at the Blackout Ripper who was perpetrating his crimes during World War II over in England in the London area. So again, really focusing on the women and their true stories rather than just like the little snippets we hear when people are talking about these serial killers. So that season is off to a really good start too. And then I have to do a shameless plug because... My daughter started her second podcast that just released this week. It's called Beyond the Gravestone, and it is all paranormal, and it's really kind of about her experiences with the paranormal. Very cool. Yes. Very cool. You have a cool daughter, and that's a cool subject. (laughs) What about you? Have you been watching anything or listening to anything lately? Well, you know, there's a lot going on for me that we talk about probably more in in our live streams, but there's a lot of life transitions, including a big move for me. So I have actually had to put a lot of viewing on the back burner for right now. I can't wait to see The Watcher because I have been following that story for years. I mean, since that started happening. And it really is a creepy, creepy story. I'm going to confess something that I think one of our colleagues is going to just be horrified. But I, after even, how do I say this? Even after meeting Josh Hallmark and spending time with him all this summer Mm -hmm. at our various events, I never got to start on the Israel Keys true crime bullshit. And I'm freaking blown away. I'm just freaking blown away. I mean, I knew Josh was talented. I had no idea what he had actually done with this material. And it is simultaneously the easiest, best listen, and also one of the most challenging listens ever. I mean, up there for me with cold, like I used to talk about cold. Right. This is jarring. I'm so glad that nobody else got the chance to tell the story the way Josh tells it. Same. Because his utter professionalism is just extraordinary. I can't say enough good things about that. It's so good. Um, I'm very excited. It is really good. Yeah. I think his new season, season six, drops tomorrow. So you got some catching up to do, but I I do do. too. I'm finishing season five. I was going to say, as far as watching, I'm watching a sci-fi show on Apple that I think is really fascinating called Severance. The whole season's been out. Probably people are familiar with it, but it's like Black Mirror. It's about five minutes in the future and it's about a big corporation. And if you get a promotion at this corporation, you get the opportunity to work in a very special area. Mm -hmm. The only catch is, is they put an implant in your brain so that you have no memory of your workday. So basically your life is- Sounds kind of wonderful. Well, on some days, <laughs> that's actually why people are drawn to it, but they have no idea what's going on on the other side. Sure. You basically are split into two people and it's, it's really a fascinating watch. And I would love to hear back from listeners from anybody else who's listening to it. So Ooh, that sounds very, very good. Yeah. Our doc review today is entitled 11 minutes, and it is a four episode documentary series that is currently streaming on Paramount plus and It is about the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas that took place in 2017. So it is a, it's a tough watch Mm. and it is a watch well worth engaging in. I can clearly state that. Absolutely. I think I'm going to have a lot to say about why we should be watching this, but trigger warning 
we're talking about an incident of mass violence as well as gun violence and discussions about trauma today. So please listen with care, especially if you are a survivor of violence and especially gun violence, because I know it was, I had to take my time with this one. So I'll I'll talk about that. Yeah, a little bit more. This has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 88%. That was the audience rating. They didn't have enough ratings from Rotten Tomatoes. Specifically, usually they have their own and then they have an audience one, but it has a pretty darn high score for who has been watching it so far. And I actually found out about this because one of my former clients who was at this event emailed it to me to let me know that it had been released. So I'm glad it got put on my radar so we could watch this one and then talk about it here. That's a really interesting to bring up now because I would go so far as to say I'm very surprised that it has not gotten more publicity. Like they haven't really publicized this in the way other things have. And I think it needs to. I think it's a really important message for what's going on in the world today. Yeah, I I think so too. I also kind of love the piece that it's this quiet film that if you come across it, you're going to be pretty moved by it. It, it seems to sort of fit on brand, if I can even use that and not to diminish it at all, but that it is not glorifying. It's not over the top. And does it need to be marketed to that? I don't know, but I wish more people would see it. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. Well, hopefully they will. Just as a reminder, and particularly for this episode, we're going to be giving an overview of a mass casualty incident and how victims survived and first responders were able to interact, engage, and survive the event themselves. We're going to be focusing on the event and the participants without glorifying the individual responsible for this horrific crime. We're not going to be mentioning his name as our compliance with the no notoriety campaign. And I would also want to say that this is exactly what the documentary does. Yep. Beautifully, they do exactly the same thing. So on October 1st, 2017, A man situated on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas opened fire on the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. The music festival was in the center of the famous Las Vegas Strip. The shooter peppered the audience with over 1,000 rounds of ammunition from several high-capacity weapons, killing 60 people and injuring at least 413 others. The shooting is now known as the deadliest mass shooting completed by a single individual in the history of the United States. So going back to what you were saying about how this documentary addressed the perpetrator, there's three major things here that I think are done perfectly. One, there's no mention of the shooter's name. And when we get to the portion where they talk of him, there's actually more about him than I expected there to be, but they do not mention his name. They really don't even show his face except for some far away, like grainy CCTV footage. Two, there are no graphic images used in this documentary. Good on them. Obviously, you don't want to re-traumatize people, but documentaries do that so unnecessarily. And three, it's absolutely victim-driven. I mean, All of the footage is their footage. The words are their words, except for some like drone footage. Really, it's it's cell phone footage. It's body cam footage taken from the event itself. So I can tell you from people that I've spoken to who were there, even though it was tough to watch, they are happy with the turnout of this documentary and how they went about it. So episode one, right off the bat, the the journalist that starts it 
talks about the importance of doing this story justice for those who were lost, the survivors and the the people that lost their lives that night, really emphasizing that this is about their stories and not about the shooter. So for me, I feel like, okay, I immediately can let my guard down, kind of settle in. I'm not going to be grossed out by glorification of this crime or feel like I'm going to be vicariously traumatized. However, you do understand like this is very real and it's going to hit home in a sense that I think we really need to witness. And this type of grief and the aftermath of it is important for us to watch and not turn away from so we can better understand these incidents, hopefully for prevention. I think that's beautifully stated. And I'd go so far as to say this is not a, a casual watch. This mm-hmm. is not really the kind of thing that you just have on in the background. No, it's active. Like you do a lot of true crime things. I mean, this is This is people sharing their perspective on an incredibly traumatic event that also shows the unbelievable resiliency and qualities of the human spirit and what we can do when we're connected. That's part of what I came away with. You meet the attendees and they're from all walks of life. It is not like your cookie cutter understanding of who goes to a country music festival totally. at all, which yeah, I, I think is that. beautiful. Yeah. People who talk about why they're going to the event from girlfriends who are recently married or people that are getting ready to start a family or a set of high school cheerleader twins, off-duty law enforcement. I mean, it's really a spectrum of people. So many people that work for the agencies that you and I work for were there. I did debriefings for people who were there. I'm close friends now with folks who were there. Just incredible stories of heroism from law enforcement officers who were in attendance. And I don't think they they hit home on it too much in this documentary necessarily, but I've been able to learn just how uniquely that they were impacted because they're at a place where they're just attending a festival, their guards down, they're not allowed to have their weapons in there because it's a concert, right? So there's this extra level of vulnerability that cops experienced there as attendees, but also as victims that they don't normally in these sort of critical incidents are really prepared for. And it was very, very impactful for them. In the documentary, they also talked to a number of first responders about what they were anticipating for that event, right? Like it's Vegas. Being a cop in Vegas has just got to be the most like crazy thing ever. My my brother was a firefighter there for a hot minute, but he just said it was the wildest thing ever. And they're used to this crazy stuff all the time. So they're kind of talking about like, yeah, gearing up for another festival, another concert. And, you know, one kid's very first night of work and his dad was a cop and his field training officer is kind of this hard ass. So you're getting to know all of these folks. You also, there's a black man from South LA who loves country and talks about how excited he is for this experience. And then like this major downer point, like where he's, someone walks up to him and is like, oh, I didn't know your kind likes country. And he was just like, what the fuck? Like, why are you killing my vibe? Well, I think actually, I don't know if it was necessarily delivered that way. I mean, I think that it's about the microaggression. Yeah. Like it's just some dumbass that said something like that, that said you're kind. You yeah. Know? I mean, it, I thought, I mean, it's sad all the way around and you really get a sense of how that impacted him immediately. Like you said, it really right. put a damper on his mood. Yeah. But, it, but you, there's this like change around where he's like, oh, hell no. I love this artist or I love this song. Like I am getting back into this. You also meet 
a woman who was a young cancer survivor and Hmm. she is like a pillar of resilience for sure. And then as you're like meeting these people, they then start talking to Jason Aldean, the the performer, the country music star who was on stage when this started happening. And right like at this part, this is where I start getting anxious because I know this story and I know that, you know, within the second song, this is where the shooting starts. And it, it was a little bit of a tough watch for me at this part. Yeah. Along with Aldine, it was also for me listening to DJ's story. Oh, right. Who had a child, you know, like th- this is the first time he's brought his child on one of the shows. And it's, it's, it, you can just feel the tension building. And I don't think that the producers or the editors were doing it to necessarily stir you up as an audience member. It's just happening organically. This is the way. Yeah. This went down. And, you know, I have to say, like, it's my fault for really not prepping myself on this episode. It's on a number of unexpected levels. Like you think, you know what you're going to be watching and you really don't. And, you know, I expect a pretty good production level, given the fact that it's streaming on really one of the major services, Paramount Plus. Mm -hmm. But I can guarantee you that you're probably not going to be completely prepared for this. And maybe if you're listening to our episode today, You'll take this to heart when you watch it. I really, really encourage you to watch it, but be prepared. Yeah. So sure enough, you know, they kind of go through everyone's kind of their stories and their pathways of how they got there in their experiences. And then Jason Aldean's performance starts and they start going through, you know, at 10.05 p.m. when that first volley of shots are fired. And there were only a few shots and and. You know, so people are very confused. They think, is it fireworks? Is it something else on the strip? Like it could be a million different things when you're in that space. And so the reason he only fired a few shots is because he was breaking the window out. So he would have a clear view and a clear shot down to the crowd without these really thick hotel windows in his way. Right. And then, you know, not even a minute later is when the first volley of machine gun fire starts. And I mean, it sounded exactly like warfare, rifle fire. And this is when people are starting to realize because now you have people getting hit and going down and they realize they're under attack. Right. They're all terrifying. They're being interviewed really well because they're, I mean, you know, you don't hear the interviewer's voice, but the way it's being shared, they go through several people, including Aldine going, is that fireworks? Yeah. Like, what is that? That's I was like looking around on stage, telling people, you know, looking at my guys and my crew, hey, is something wrong with the speakers? You got to fix that. So everybody, like, I think, like you're saying in these kind of unexpected events, your rational mind wants to attach something to it that's not going to immediately be something of fear. It's like, wait, what what is that? Of course, it turned out to be something really, really, really traumatic. Yeah, it's it's very disorienting and confusing, I think, is what you get. And so then as as they start sort of like flashing on the time, like as each minute goes by, basically each minute that goes by is a new round of fire that's raining down on this crowd from his rifles. And you start getting people talking about being hit and being injured. We also get law enforcement's response and how they're hearing about it, which again, talk about confusion. You know, the way that this is, these grounds are sort of situated in between these tall hotels, you have the fact that the sound of the gunfire is ricocheting off buildings. So it sounds like it's coming from a bunch of different directions. And law enforcement was getting, I've actually seen 
the FBI debrief this in a professional setting. And it was just total confusion because people were reporting gunfire everywhere, all throughout the strip. And they thought this was coordinated mass terrorist attack happening in like every hotel on the strip. It just, I can't even imagine what was going through their minds of like, here it is like the next 9-11, but taken up a notch is here in Las Vegas tonight. So it, really it was like, is this more than one person? Finally, finally, they see that there's muzzle flash coming from the hotel and that's when they're able to hone in a little bit. But and that's a very quick fast forward, I think through this 11 minutes of terror. Yeah. But you, I, I think the part that was really poignant here was they show some CCTV footage, basically minute by minute, but of all the people like getting up and running and what they were doing is they started realizing there was such a pattern to like, okay, when the gunfire stops, it's probably when he's reloading, we need to all run. And you just kind of see like these herds of people getting up and moving in the quiet parts. And it's just really terrifying to put yourself in that situation. You know, something else that was really profound for me was they have body cam footage of the SWAT officers that were going into the hotel once they realized where it was coming from. And you have all these heavily armed, tacked out guys in an elevator. And they're just like, silent. One, they're probably listening, but also just like what is going to be on the other side of those elevator doors when they open. Yeah. And it was, oh, it gave me goosebumps. Yeah. I think, well, you have a particular perspective on that scenario. That would sure. be a complete resonance for you. I, I was moved by it and disturbed by it, but I don't, I don't think it would be to the level that you were. I was, you know, really pulled into the people's stories because they're just flashing from participant to participant about what was going through their mind as the person next to them yeah. fell to the ground. Yeah. Like just trying to process it, trying to figure out what to do next, knowing that some people were already dead, others were injured. What do I do? Who do I know? And then also immediately you're drawn into the twin sisters story who had been separated. And, you know, I mean, it's a, like back in the day, you don't really get separated from your friends at a big concert, but now in the age of cell phones, it's like, you can always find each other. Right. right. And in a melee like this, every, all those bets are completely over. I actually started numbing out. I was watching it very mm. early in the morning. And there's something about those scenes, like you were seeing in the elevator, it just, all of this felt more real than cops, even though cops was supposedly in yeah. the moment action, but there's sort of a hyper melodramatic version of cops, especially as the later seasons continued to be produced where, you know, all these little agencies want to show off for the reality TV show. And here it's chilling because like you were saying, it's quiet. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I it's five years since this happened. October 1st was the anniversary. And every year that comes around, you know, I send a little email or I check on my clients that I saw who were there. And I think this was really good timing for it to come out. Like, I feel like there was enough time and space between it. Like I said, overall, the reactions I've heard have been good. I remember sitting in a training where they did the debriefing and it had to only be two years after the incident. And it was the FBI's evidence response team, because after all these people were gone and vacated the premises, and obviously the perpetrator is dead and they're starting to do their investigation. All of this evidence, like all these people's stuff was left in these concert 
grounds. And so they basically cordoned it off and went through everything because they still didn't know, like, was there someone inside the venue that was also doing shooting? But the presentation was so sterile and clinical that I was so uncomfortable in there because I knew the odds with it being a law enforcement crowd that there were people in that audience who had been there and there was zero trigger warning. There were like zero, zero shits given really for kind of tampering down some of even like, not even like, Hey, we're going to show video footage. Like they would just play it. And it was, I was like, I will never do a presentation like this without a trigger warning. Like how I would, yeah, I I was, I was livid after that presentation. I didn't know. God, I didn't know that. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I, I take holding space with people who have been through these types of traumas. You know, it's an honor for me to be able to do that and do that in my profession. And for myself as well, you know, I took a lot of pauses in episode one because being a victim of gun violence on the job as well, it was like a safe way for me to watch this like let me let me come back to this when when I'm you know not as activated and again like I don't think we get to just sit back and say I'm not going to watch something because of discomfort people are dying by the droves in this you know due to gun violence and again it's just sort of good to witness this but in a safe place and and definitely I'm saying like I'm not saying like let's hold your face and make you watch this like do it how it's safe and comfortable for you Yeah. Is there more that you want to share? Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I think this came up a little bit when we did our Columbine episode, uh, however many years ago that was. But really, you know, looking at that and kind of listening to people's stories of trauma and resiliency and moving through that space is something that I've had to do. And when you have been fired upon by somebody with a gun, there's nothing, at least in my experience, there's nothing more terrifying. And, you know, it was something for a long time that took a long time for me to be able to say that I was scared or say that I was fearful and all these things as a police officer, especially as a female, you know, you just don't want to use those words. And here I am on the other side as a police psychologist trying to give people those tools to use those words because they're totally normal reactions for this very abnormal situation, even for a first responder, your textbook officer involved shooting, which none of them are really textbook, but you know, those are still very rare, unique incidents. So I just can imagine something like this on the scale of this, how it was not only for the, the unsuspecting participants and attendees at this concert, but also for the officers responding to this. And they do talk to some officers who were shot during the response, including the young cop that was, it was his very first night. And my actual first shooting was my I was still on training. So it was very, very early in my career. So there's definitely a moment that you're like, oh shit, I'm, I've only been doing this how many months or first night do I keep doing this job? Because what is happening? <laughs> yeah. But it is, you know, you, you, your rational mind starts to realize, okay, this is a very unusual event. And, you know, what do I take from this and how do I move forward in my job and protect myself and what lessons and post-traumatic growth comes out of this? So, well, I think that that experience and that perspective certainly just shows how valuable an asset you are to your agency, you know, because another person that doesn't have a law enforcement background, a visceral lived in experience of that law enforcement background, I don't know if they could really grasp. I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, like, I don't want to make a generalization because you don't have to have had brain cancer to be a great brain surgeon. It doesn't right. work that way, yeah. but certainly your experience is an asset 
You know, I subscribed for the free trial version of this because I don't have, of all the streaming services that we have, <laughs> I don't have this particular one. And I remember thinking very early on, I was glad for that option because it has nonstop commercial breaks or non-forward <laughs> commercial breaks. Okay, helpful, yeah. And that actually really gave me breathing time because I tend to like really dive down in concentration with these. So this was sort of forced breaks, which was nice. And there are things, you know, that impact you as a listener personally, and I'm sure that, you know, everybody has their versions. But then when the victims and the first responders start sharing their immediate experience of their wounds hmm. and addressing this victim's wounds and that victim's wounds and the first responders sort of going through and writing on people's foreheads, yeah. you know, what's your name? You know, putting identifying information. It is so fucking real. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, this is just getting more and more and more real. And then you have both the the victim and the first responders perspectives on having to say this one's gone yeah and then someone right next to them that may or may not be in immediate urgent critical care hearing that the person right next to them is gone and thinking is that going to be me i mean it's the the idea of people experiencing this death all around them is when it escalated for me emotionally and now they start weaving in the family member stories like mm. at first you know, first two episodes is not much of the family stuff. And then when it comes in, damn, it's a whole other layer. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sense of just hardcore triaging is mm -hmm. really scary. And you, you do feel like you're in the middle of that as they're sort of explaining all the different perspectives. And then episode two, I felt like this is really where the story of like the everyday hero started to come in. You have the man from South Los Angeles who, you know, he gets out, but he decides to go back in to help kind of checks himself and is like, okay, I'm okay, but what can I do here? And goes back in to start helping people out and almost immediately gets shot himself. And he gets shot in the neck and he's kind of alone and sort of stumbles back out to outside of the arena and goes up to a truck that like drives by and asks, tells them he needs help or needs to be taken to the hospital. And the truck kind of takes off. It was just, it was rough to watch him recount that. But then you have this cop from San Diego who's attending off duty and he, his wife gets out and then he also decides to stay and do some triage with victims. And he ends up going up to the guy from South LA and helping him out. So it's, again, like these two stories sort of converge. Yeah, that relationship becomes like now, I think is probably one of maybe three storylines that now continue right. through the rest of the episodes. And it's incredibly moving and incredibly touching and, you know, building on this guy from South LA's experience of like, Am I going to survive this? And mm. the the officer goes out of his way to make eye contact with them. I am yeah. here with you. I'm not leaving. You're going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. We're going to get you out of here. And then has to hand him off to someone. That moment that like, it's like a, yes. a movie moment. Like, yes. you're going to be okay. They're going to take you to the hospital. I have to stay here. And the fear that... The guy experienced like, okay, what's going to happen to me now? I mean, it's, yeah, it's an amazing okay. story. That's such an interesting piece of that, that trauma bonding. Cause we see it with the off-duty firefighter from Seattle and the twin oh, God, yeah. that he ends up 
taking care of, but there's always like, they can only do so much, right? They're, they're in their cowboy boots and got nothing with them, but they can do a little bit of first aid and then they have to hand off to the nurses and the doctors. But there's this like, no, like you are my person, like don't leave me. And they don't want to leave the person. And it's such an interesting perspective on trauma And then, you know, not all of these episodes are spoiler alerts, but how they do stay in touch and connect later in life. And he attends her graduation and just like all of these amazing feel good for people that have just played really important parts in each other's lives. As well as the ER nurse who was a dedicated ER nurse. And she, after that incident, like this is somebody who loved working in the ER and after losing a victim that they really did not expect to die. Yeah. She was like, I'm done. I'm out. Yep. I'm, this is, this is it for me. She, and she, you know, still works as a nurse, but she's like, this is, this chapter of my life is closed. And if you, by any chance are listening to this, you absolutely did the right thing for you. And yep. God love you for the work that you did and continue to do. And I'm glad you're taking care of yourself. I'm yep. really glad you're taking care of yourself. And sharing your story in the documentary. Ah, yeah. So valuable. Yes. So in, in this episode, we also get more on the responding SWAT officers that go up to the 32nd floor. And actually a security guard had been alerted first to maybe something funky going on on that floor. Because interestingly, I guess there's sensors on the doors. If a door is open too long, they get an alert, which I'm like, of course it's Vegas. (laughs) Everything's censored, right? And everything's got a camera on it. But he goes up to kind of check that out. And as the the room that the perpetrator was in was all the way down at the end of a hallway, strategically, obviously. And as this this security guard's walking down the hall, he starts taking rounds, like 30 to 40 rounds were shot at him and he's hit in the leg. And it turns out that the shooter had set up a camera on a food cart that he put outside his door. So he can see who's coming down basically that hallway of death because there's no cover for trying to approach that doorway. And so we hear about the security guard story. We also hear about the field training officer who has the rookie cop who is trying to get his partner to the hospital because he's been shot. And just earlier in that night, they went and met this rookie's dad because he's yeah. on duty and they're both cops. And like, let's take a picture. It's your first night. And here this field training officer is like, he's, I love that guy. Cause he's like so gruff and like takes no shit. But then he's like, fuck, I can't let this kid die on my watch. Like <laughs> I work with his dad. Yeah. And he's kind of talking about that, but to hear this big tough guy, you know, at moments really, put his humor aside and let the emotion come through was really just, I like watching that because it allows us a window into the vulnerability of our first responders. Absolutely. I thought another kind of cool storyline or twist to all this was that one of the high school twins, her boyfriend he, you know, he's a few years older than her. He's there at the concert with her, but his dad is one of the SWAT operators that goes up and is tracking down the perpetrator. And at the end, it turns out that he ends up going to the police academy and becoming an officer as well. But, you know, you kind of see this this wave that he rides throughout the night, sort of like calling his dad for help. And his dad... As many of SWAT officers that I know is like, you need to man up tonight. You need to click something on. You need to save your girlfriend. You know, I was just talking to him like, all right, buddy, I'm going to go get the bad guy. 
you take care of your girlfriend and yourself and we'll all be reunited. I thought that was just kind of a interesting thing because you you literally have the phone calls caught on audio because of the dad's body cam footage. Yeah. Kind of cool. It was very real. Yeah, that was that particular part was very real. And I think I think a lot of viewers are probably going to be stunned by that, you mm. know, not not understanding for law enforcement, for military, for first responders, having to go into that mode. And it really is a, a cognitive switch yeah. that has to happen in order for people to do their jobs in situations like that. Absolutely. So episode three starts and they are talking about the first responders that were already on site, like the ambulance, the EMTs, and they had 20 plus ambulance standing by, but that could not fulfill what ended up happening. I think they said there were like nine or 10 victims they were shoving into each one and trying to transport them to the hospitals. And, you know, people are going in personal vehicles. It was just, again, like adding this other layer of chaos from the the infrastructure that was sort of put in place for just your normal sort of things that could happen with these types of attendees or these amount of attendees at an event. Right. And a, and a city like Vegas is already set up to handle a lot of emergencies. Sure. It is a major, major tourist hub with a lot of stuff that happens anyway. But this was the level of confusion and the melee that was mm. occurring with people just running every which way. I mean, you were watching these videos of people not going all one direction. I completely understand because people were trying to figure out where the shot's coming from. I'm sure there were a lot of people that were trained that were saying, well, don't go to the exit because the exit may be where other people are waiting. It's very confusing. A lot of conflicting reports from shooters everywhere, like you were saying, which was not true. There wasn't more than one shooter right. that we know of. And it's pretty much been singled down to this one independent shooter. But mm -hmm. people were confused. Was it intentional? Was it a were there troll calls? Were people really trying to help by calling the police? Or were there just, you know, some haters that are like, but this is, this is a great time to, to fuck with people. And then yeah. they were even reporting shooters at the front desks of hotels. And I don't know where that could come from other than, you know, there's also people that are unbalanced or become unbalanced in situations like that, that may have misinterpreted what was happening. But the level of medical personnel situation, the DJ was saying earlier that it was like being at the beach at Normandy. And I think that that probably is pretty accurate in liken it, likening it to an active war scene. Sure. So as they're starting to interview more of the medical personnel and all the medical staff that are brought back in, and you're going back and forth between the hospital and the actual lobby of the Mandalay where all these people are rushing back. So yeah, it's you're seeing confusion in two completely separate really really overwhelming. You know, I, I wonder now if any kind of additional emergency protocols are being instituted in, in Vegas, given the enormity of this event. I can't imagine that they're not. I mean, they're probably thinking like, okay, moving forward, we got to be ready. Know. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure the protocol is different because yeah, you had doctors that were like finishing long shifts that were, and people were just coming in and, you know, obviously everybody on a day off and all of that was, were being called in, but I don't know, that would be really interesting because is it, do you chalk it up to like, this is a once in a lifetime thing? God, I hope people don't have that like mindset about it because like, what's the harm in just preparing for it? Just having a protocol just yeah. in case, right? Yeah. This takes it to but, a completely different level. I think. Though. Yeah. You know, another really interesting thing about the way this is structured is that 
even up till now in the third episode, they're not branching out to anybody beyond the non-local family members. Mm. So they're making an effort not to put out incorrect information. You know, I think that that's a really smart thing where you narrow the band of collateral information so that you're processing it more efficiently. I think at least that's the way I would interpret it. I would say this though, confused between the two twins. <laughs> yeah, I it did. Was I was like, which one is which? <laughs> I mean, they're so both so engaging and charming. I know, I know. And they are identical and they, yes, they are, are made up exactly the same way. And they both are vivacious and really expressive. Yeah, so really I did confusing. find myself like looking at their names specifically when they would come on screen because I'm like, which one is which again? There's the one with the boyfriend with the SWAT dad. And then the other one, I think she was the one that was sort of being cared for by the Seattle firefighter. But gosh, yeah, they're just and, and they talk about they are those twins that just have that connection. They're best friends. They're clearly like Absolutely. very, very best friends. Well, the Dean, I think, is the name of the Seattle. Yes. Of the, yeah. So he knows, I mean, like you talk about that trauma bonding experience is like, he takes her in and he says, I have to go help other people now. Mm. And so yeah. both of them are hurting from that separation because there's this, I mean, not to get all sciencey on it, but there is a neurochemical thing that pops out and there we are in situations like that. We are merging chemicals. Our neurons are mirroring each other. We are forging connections that might never have been forged in any other situation if these two people had come together and it's for survival. Yeah. And they share that as he leaves, it's going through her head. Okay, I'm here alone. I'm going in and out of consciousness. Oh, he told me I'm going to be okay. Where's my sister? You know, there's still a lot going on for her that is later resolved really well when her sister is brought in. And it's just, she just, she describes this immediate sense of relief and being able to see her sister and know that yes. she's alive. Yes. That's pretty incredible. They're like in a hospital room together for the rest of it, like as much as they can be. They don't leave each other's side. Right. And one of them was, could even have checked out and she's like, nope, not going, going to stay yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So moving on kind of as, as law enforcement's looking for the perpetrator, they decide to, they've narrowed down where he is. They are going to go ahead and engage with him because they have to stop him. But by the time they get to the room and blast the doors open, he has died by suicide. So there were 24 firearms strategically put all around the adjoining suites that this man had. The one good thing about this sort of going out as a possible terrorist incident at first was that the FBI is involved very, very quickly. So you have a lot more resources yeah. immediately, as well as in the aftermath. Like I said, the, the evidence response team that ends up taking over, but they are there to sort of lend their professionalism and, and experience, I guess, of handling these major, major incidents. So it's, it's kind of this ending of like, oh, okay, this guy took his own life, but now it's sort of starting to put together the why. Yeah, crunching. Yeah, because he's like, kind of like, where do I start? What do I yeah, do? What like, do I do? You, you don't know who she is, and I have her stuff, and I can't get back in there. And nine one one dispatchers, another group that is just vicariously traumatized all oh, the time. Oh yeah, clearly. Yeah. So there is some, like I said, some CCTV footage of the perpetrator. They do have a 
profiler from the behavioral analysis unit giving a little bit of commentary. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a second, but really he's saying, look, we didn't have anything on this guy. Like what we could find is he was very self-interested and self-absorbed. And we did not have a legacy token left behind. And our listeners know legacy token would be something like a manifesto, something explaining why they did what they did. You know, we're kind of left it, it, at the end of episode three, you're kind of left like, oh, well, what? Like there's no resolution to why this at least happened, which is something that can help people heal and move on. You know, this this was episode three was pretty heavy for all of these reasons, I think. And a lot of the first responder stories and the way that they were told reminds me of one of my other favorite documentaries on Netflix. It's called November 13th, Attack on Paris. And similarly, there's stories from the first responders and how it impacted them as well as the concert goers, because this was about a terrorist event that happened all throughout the city of Paris. But most notably, the the last event was at a concert, an indoor concert venue. Yes. And the the first responders are talking about afterwards, kind of walking through the deceased victims and hearing the cell phones ringing on the yeah. dead bodies because people are trying to call their loved ones and see if they're okay. Yeah, there's a the version of that incident happening in this documentary to me was eerie in a different way in that this was after they had cleared the bodies and there were still phones ringing yeah. phones that had been dropped and just like and even one of the first responders is talking about how eerie it was because he's walking and hearing all these phones going off and knowing that these calls are in trying to locate people who may or may not be dead yeah really impactful so episode four yeah so there was actually more discussed here about the perpetrator than I really thought that there would be, but I still think it was done as tactfully as possible. And I think for our profession as forensic psychologists, he's really such an enigma because he didn't leave any motive behind. And there was really not much telling about his lifestyle or behaviors that pointed to something that was just missed, right? Because we always think like, what did we miss? What what warning behavior in the pathway did we not catch on to? And certainly this is also tough sur for survivors because they don't have a reason that this was done. And I say reason in air quotes. So it leaves this open-endedness to their healing and an open wound of vulnerability. Because if you go through something like this, often they're going to say to themselves, like, what lesson do I learn from this? Like how to keep myself safe in the future. And I feel like that was just left unresolved. Right. And that's where trauma comes from, right? Because you can't resolve the situation. Like, or, or at least, you know, the, the most, like it, it's one of the reasons we talk about people being drawn to true crime is like, I want to experience mm. this alien other that right. I may or may not have any resonance with. I want to understand why and what the motivation is. And like now that it's all over, we have a little bit more information about him, but he still is quite an enigma overall. And we don't know. And that's part of the mystery. So these people are still hurting. They want a resolution. They want, they think they at least want to know why he did it. And we're never going to know. And even if you do know, it's probably not going to be a good enough answer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Beautifully said. And we're going to keep with the theme of not giving him too much attention. Really, there's not a lot to give because we just don't know. But what we do know is that he was 64 years old, basically a professional poker player at this point. He had been retired from a few jobs. There's conflicting reports about 
you know, whether he was financially well off, but also had some legal gambling debts. I think that kind of comes with being a professional poker player. However, he had paid all of those off before he had conducted this final act of his. We get a little bit of info from some of his brother's interviews later on where they talk about their father was just really an asshole. He left their mom with four kids. He, the the perpetrator in this case was the oldest. So he was kind of left to take care of the others. And they talk about him constantly wanting to be in control. And they really saw for as little contact as they had with him, him if getting a sense that he was sort of lo losing control over life. Don't really say why, but towards the end, he felt a little bit more sort of scattered and all over the place. Also noted that they found on his computer that he was sort of searching like how to be a social media star, like kind of these quick get rich quick ideas. So it makes me think that maybe there were more money problems that we know of. I don't really know what that's about. <laughs> well, one of the things that they do discuss in brief, I mean, there are some things that are thrown out as almost insignificant that I think actually are, are quite significant. And one of them was that he had been a very high roller. Uh, so yeah. he wasn't winning at the level that he previously did. And there's also something else is his girlfriend, when she was later interviewed, talked about there was a rapid and significant change in his mood. Yep. I see that as, you know, I there's several different diagnoses that could possibly cause that. There could be Lewy body dementia. There could be onset of Parkinson's cognitive issues, if not in his motor skills. It could be onset of dementia because one of the first things you see is personality changes. Sure. And then what didn't there was there's some sort of like incident, like a like a physical injury or something he had at one of the hotels? Well, he filed a negligence lawsuit against the owner of the Cosmopolitan. And this was in 2012, where sort of a slip and fall lawsuit oh, against the okay. hotel and alleged that it cost him $30,000 in medical expenses. Okay. Basically the casino disputed the claims and then the lawsuit was dropped. So, you know, that to me also feels like a get rich quick thing, yeah. but it could be legitimate. And maybe that's a source of a grievance. You know, that's, that's hard to say. Oh yeah. I don't know. But I also, you know, it's just all over the place because he had done prior scouting behavior at a totally different festival, the Life is Beautiful Festival yeah. at a different hotel. Yeah. He had done the same, same thing. Same suitcases, yep. same setup. Yeah. Like a dry run, whether or not it was something he and I'd also, I think I recall that he had scouted other places in the country, like Wrigley Field, some other places of large gatherings. So I don't know if this was specific to the casinos. He lived in very close proximity, so it feels very convenient. But it's interesting because the the FBI profiler from the behavioral analysis unit that's interviewed during the in the documentary says his father was a high profile bank robber in the seventies yes. who was like at the top of all these wanted lists and, and described as a psychopath, right? Yeah, he says like you know, he had these psychopathic tendencies. This is really interesting. He, he's like, I'm not saying either way, but this is really interesting to look at how this could have impacted his son genetically or, yeah. you know, just sort of modeling. Or did this influence his son's, the perpetrator in this case, his way to kind of 
go out. So I thought that was fascinating. I think it's a lot of speculation. We just don't have any information about it. I remember when talking to Dr. Chris Mahandi about probably when we were in Austin, we were talking about different mass casualty shooting incidents. And I was like, what about that guy in Vegas? What do you think? And he's like, there's so much narcissism there. And it's just interesting. You know, I I think that plays into him not wanting to let us know anything and absolutely all of that stuff. You know, there's nothing they're going to be able to say about me and trace this back to I'm going to take it to my grave. But, but then like, I want to be a social media star. I don't, yeah, weird, right? Very, <laughs> very strange. Although I, I agree with, I agree with Dr. Mohandi. I think that's a very, very astute observation about that level of narcissism, but yeah. that could be narcissism in tandem with everything else we talked about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But he, you're right. His, his girlfriend whom he lived with said that they really didn't, yes, he purchased weapons. They didn't really talk about that. He didn't really have great relationships with people. It was pretty much a loner. And she, so she was out of the country when this happened. She was in the Philippines. She immediately came back. She was very cooperative. Yes. And she said that his change in personality was that he became very cold, depressed. He had purchased more firearms. So we now know that he was quietly stockpiling 33 high-powered weapons, which included assault rifles and explosives. And bump stocks, right? Yeah, the bump stocks modified these weapons. But that all happened in the year, just 13 months leading up to this. Yeah, I mean, all legally owned guns. Yeah, and we're looking at warning behaviors and these kind of mass events. We talked about this before. I mean, it does look like you were saying he did a dry run. He engaged in some research and planning, but we don't see any of the other proximal warning behaviors like fixation on a single person or a Mm -hmm. single issue that we know of. I mean, who knows? Maybe he has a manifesto hidden somewhere. Likely not, though. We don't know if he's identifying with a previous attacker or a soldier or military venture or any kind of particular cause. There's no indication of that or acting out novel aggression. He's like, it's maybe, is he testing his ability to become violent? I don't, I don't know. Was there a previous history leading up to this? Yeah. Not yeah, that I mean, we know of. Yeah. I, I find that footage of him doing the dry run and then also coming into the Mandalay in his, a massive amount of luggage, carrying all that gun and ammo. It's chilling because it's just so banal. It's just yeah. like anybody else walking in. He literally, he's like a CIA agent. He's invisible. You know, you just mm. not somebody you would ever, ever yep. notice to stick exactly. out. Exactly. So I like that they briefly talked to everyone involved about gun control. It's very brief, right? And But they, they talked to them about their personal beliefs from the ER doctors that were working on victims to the cops who were just attending and also those who responded. And I thought it was nice to lightly touch on this from these, this first person perspective of someone who is witnessing or experiencing trauma and how this experience can impact your views about this. Like you can have your view about something like gun control. And then when you are now tasked with patching up holes in this body and seeing the damage it really does, or being the parents of a victim who's killed because they were hit with such a high powered weapon. It was not in your face. And it was just, I think, something to like give the audience and here sit with this, especially those that kind of talk about, hey, I felt this way before yeah. and I feel this way now. <laughs> yeah. But the the aftermath of all of this 
so 58 people were killed that day to succumb to injuries in later years, stemming from the initial wounds from the event. I think it was really nicely done and almost verbatim, the survivors are talking about that there's no right or wrong way to process trauma. And they're using words like fear and anger and talking about post-traumatic stress, talking about suicidal ideation, yeah. you know, after this trauma, just not wanting to be here anymore because it's too psychologically painful. That was very powerful. There was also this element of talking to the first responders and them describing how, you know, the tendency is for them to shove things down and not talk about it and how toxic that is. And I just, I thought that was nice to touch on as well, because you see these so important, oh, absolutely big burly guys breaking down in tears and saying like, no, this is, this is real. <laughs> and I'm going to be worse off and I'm not going to be able to take care of myself or my family or my community that I serve if I don't address this trauma. Yeah. So, and, and I thought, you know, not that we can get into it too much, but you definitely are feeling flavors of survivor's guilt as oh, well. Oh yeah. Which... Particularly there, there are a couple of people who share like, why, why, why me, you know, why did I survive? Yeah. You think about that. And it's one of them's law enforcement. So Yep. You know, this is not that, I mean, law enforcement sees a lot of high intensity situations that can be traumatic, but their resiliency is generally pretty high. And this is one that just kind of pushes through, burns through all layers of resiliency, I think. Yeah. And this is going to be so cringe for me to say, but I, I also would hope that as awful as this is, that it was an opportunity for learning for a lot of people to, to be able to look inward and see their strengths mm -hmm. and maybe see a couple of edges of needed growth. That's sure. what I would hope. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the victims, Natalie, she's the one that had survived cancer previously. She sums it up beautifully. She says that one night, one person showed evil. Since then, hundreds of thousands have shown kindness. And that's where I want the focus to be. What a survivor. Yeah. She's the epitome of a survivor. And, you know, the, the relationships that have been formed and the reunions that they have and the get togethers, it's just, they're people that never asked to belong to a certain club, but they are finding healing in each other, which was really beautiful. And then at the very, very end, what the filmmakers do is they, you know, sort of scrolling list yeah. all the names of the victims and then, which, you know, totally like, okay, I could see that coming, but then they list all the cities and names of the people killed in mass shooting incidents since then. And that was just like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> yeah. It really yeah. drives it home. I mean, one thing that I did want to touch on, and it's the con it's the super controversial part of this, is that, you know, at the very end, you feel like you have created a relationship, you know, even as a viewer, you have a pair of relationship with all these people, these EMTs, these law enforcement, these victims, survivors, all of them. Uh, it, it's amazing. And what's fascinating is that you might start making a lot of assumptions about who is going to still be in support of absolute concrete free for all gun rights mm -hmm. yeah. and some are expected and like you know we'll say you know no i'm still a, a second amendment yeah. supporter and i'm not going to change and then there are some others that are like yeah i have a i have a, an automatic with a bump stock and i picked it up and yeah it's not any fun anymore i'm not gonna that again and you know and look i'm not i have for one thing i'm just not gonna as i also know that 
experience is the only thing that changes perception. And I'm anything that I say here or at a lecture or anything is not going to make a difference to the vast majority of people who have very hard, rigid stances on this. But what I would say is, is that if you if you really do support, truly support open, unfettered Second Amendment, and you're also saying in a forum like this that the issue is about the individual and their mental illness, then you cannot vote against mental health programs. You cannot take a political stance or support a political individual, a political candidate who absolutely continuously votes against those type of programs, that type of support every single time. And you cannot lie to yourself, or I guess you can, but I'm going to say you'd have to go through a lot of mental gymnastics to lie to yourself to the extent to say that, okay, I want rights. I want the gun rights. I also say that there needs to be a support and also that costs money. So costing money means that you may have to alter your stance on where funds go and sure. where your view of funding is likely going to be integrally uh, attached to your political stance. So I'm just putting it back on some people that yeah. this is going to be a challenge and you have to sit in that discomfort and see where it falls if you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, or your your votes, right? Like right. If, if, if you are of the narrative that it's primarily mental health driven, then let's support the hell out of mental then health let's do services. it. We're, we're, that's where we are. We're ready to yeah. do it. Let's, let's, let's put these programs into place. So final thoughts, what did you think overall and how many brains do you give it? I give it five brains. I mean, I'm, I'm also, like I say all the time, I'm the perfect audience member because I can almost always find something to resonate with. And I, you know, this was just so compelling because it really drills down into my areas of value, like mm. my my core values, personal liberty versus personal safety, yeah. you know, kind of tagging on what I said before is like, you know, these are not concrete issues and people want them to be concrete because they're uncomfortable with talking about sitting in discomfort. And that's the danger and the beauty that set up a story like this. So five brains, but a warning, do not watch this. If you're already stressed out, do not yeah. watch it. If you're going through a down swoop in your mood, don't watch it. If you're depressed. It is not a distractionary thing to watch. This will not relax you. Just be careful. And I'm just saying that also because I've been through like an incredibly stressful period in the last <laughs> yes. few months, but I'm, yes. I'm looking out for our listeners that I care about very deeply. Don't do a Shiloh and assign this to someone who's been stressed lately. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so I give it four brains. I, you know, again, this for as rigorous as this sounds, it's not entertainment and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? right? But for like overall entertainment value, it's not compelling in that sense. It is compelling for a lot of other reasons. And it absolutely gets an A plus for being victim focused and being intense without being graphic or glorifying inherently, like it doesn't have twists and turns, like maybe I would want from a true crime documentary, but I like to experience documentaries as a consumer on a bunch of different levels. I just think it's done beautifully. And I, again, highly recommend just for our awareness and to hear people's stories straight from them rather than yeah. having someone else turn it into something else. So there we go. There's our documentary for October. 
great choice, Dr. Shiloh. Thanks. I appreciate this. It was a tumultuous ride, but I think we can both definitely refer this and encourage people to watch it. Just be careful. Yes, absolutely. All right, everyone. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Take folks. care. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential.